I know it was meaningful for all of the members of Congress that walked through the building. From Congress to campus. The whole point is to continue that conversation. And yeah, this reinvigorates with emotions and with images. The scene of the crime, a first-hand experience. You watch it on TV, you see it from a thousand feet away. You don't, you don't see what happens when a school is turned into a war zone. Framing school safety and gun safety. There's no one thing that'll make the change. It's changing this and that and that. If we can't get together, and work together on this, and then <laughs> what the heck are we doing? In the heart of storm season. It's now going to be more expensive to live in risky areas. Citizens insurance cutting customers. Insurance companies are realizing that climate change is directly affecting their bottom line. Homeowners caught in the trade-off and rate hikes. This is something that cannot be ignored any longer. Weeks before school starts. We're facing a, an epidemic when it comes to a teacher shortage. Teachers take the spotlight beg for a living wage as a state tries to fill the shortage. We're going to make sure we're focused on a few things, keeping teachers, retaining teachers, recruiting teachers. The big news of the week and the newsmakers all live this week in South Florida. Good Sunday morning. I'm Glenna Milberg. We begin with your members of Congress on the campus absorbing up close and firsthand the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas crime scene. And the question, what, if anything, might that change? Since that Valentine's Day five years ago, 3,000 more mass shootings in the U.S., according to the Gun Violence Archive, including schools, Uvalde, Nashville, where parents presume their most precious will be safe but time and time again realize they may not be. In the month after the Parkland catastrophe in 2018, Florida's conservative legislature and governor, then Rick Scott, passed gun safety laws that were unprecedented in this state, largely because of personal attachment they saw or for some felt. A few days ago, two South Florida congressmen, Democrat Jared Moskowitz and Republican Mario Diaz-Balart, led a site visit to Stoneman Douglas High's 1200 building, frozen in time as a crime scene for the last five years. Congressman Mario Diaz-Balart right here with us today live, and I am so happy to have you back at the table. Thank you for being here. Yeah, with what a us. pleasure to be here in person. Yeah. And I wanna talk a, a lot, we have a lot to talk about today, but I wanna start with what you and your colleagues did. Jared Moskowitz is an alum of Marjorie yeah. Stoneman Douglas. You and he wrote this letter inviting this tour. What, what was the goal? What did you hope to accomplish? Well, first, uh, this was something that the families, including Max Schachter, uh, had, had, had thought of. And mm -hmm. to, to have people actually see and experience not only the horror, because we know about the horror, but obviously seeing the crime scene, because it is still intact as yeah. it was when it happened, but also seeing some of the, some of the failures uh, that took place on that day, and, and also then look at, talk about some of the failures that took place before that. Layers, um, we've been reporting for five years. Multiple layers, layers multiple yeah. failures from local police to the FBI to, you know, um, to the school system. And so this is something that obviously, I hate to say this, was probably the most avoidable uh, mass shooting in history. Um, so, but, but I'll tell you, it's an experience that 
you know, I, I don't want to sound crass that I never wanted to, to obviously, you, know, you hope this never happens, and if it happens, uh, I was dreading that day after we did the invitation, yeah. we sent out the invitation to see it, but I'm, but I'm also, uh, you know, grateful to the families that, uh, that they spent that time with us in the facility looking at a horrific, horrific crime scene. Yeah, you know, we, we were talking earlier, this community has a per, such a personal attachment yeah. to what happened there. Yeah. And I, I want to really um, pick your brain a little bit, and as a member of Congress, who's pretty powerful, especially in the money department, personally there, we watched some of the video. It, you, were, you took it a bit hard, it <laughs> appeared to us. Take us through what you, what was your impression, what was your reaction? Was there anything that you, after five years, really were not prepared for? You know, we've read and heard so much, and I've, and I've, and I've met with the families on multiple, multiple times, um, locally and in Washington. And so I think I had an idea as to what to expect, but, but certain um, failures just in the physical building, once this horrific violent cowardly act starts there were even failures then right the the first thing by the way that shocked me is you know they've the families have been going through these trials yes. and that has been I think unfortunate to say the least as to some of the results of those of those trials which is why the building was preserved correct for because that of legal these trials, process. right and yes. then and then that same day that we did the tour with the families some of the family members they had a, a live fire reenactment because there is no way there's no way that that you didn't hear where these shots were coming from, and there's mm -hmm. no way that the individual who's now, think, you know, even though, and by the way, he—I don't even want to mention his name—but we know we're talking about the the officer that was there, yeah. who failed miserably in every way. But there's no way that he didn't know where that was coming from because he actually walked up to the door, and so we were able to see that. But then also just how after this thing starts, how just with a little bit more training, a little bit more knowledge, uh, uh, some of the, uh, of the deaths may have been avoided. And, and so, again, a horrific sight. Um, and and here's, my, here's the goal. Apparent. Yeah, and that's what hits you, right? That's yeah. what hits you. You know, that's there for the grace of God. Go I or go my family members. Right. And so, but, and I've gotten to know these family members, some of them yeah. quite well. And so it's, it's, it's not something that uh, will ever leave me. So now let's bring that into the Congressional yeah. Forum, yeah. because um, Uvalde, Robb Elementary, um, 19 students, yeah. two adults, died just a year ago, May. Yeah. And it was right after that that Congress passed its most recent package mm -hmm. of gun reforms. Um, in the House, uh, 14 Republicans voted for it, and yeah. you were not one of them. Yeah. You voted even though against that. Even though I have one of the bills that I worked on, is part of that package. Why? And why? Why? Because one of the it? things, one of the things that is unfortunate that happens a lot. And by the way, Republicans do it, and Democrats do it. We, we um, are a nonpartisan team. I know, I know. But I will tell. And this is a nonpartisan yeah. criticism, or a bipartisan criticism, and it happens rel relatively regularly. And it's unfortunate is that whoever is in control will put poison pills on that bill. What were the poison pills? There that were you a number of them. One of the one of the things, for example, if I recall, because this is now a little bit of a, a long time ago relatively long time ago. Florida, by the way, after the shooting, and I give a lot of credit to then legislator, state legislator, now Congressman uh, Moskowitz, who I think, I think is as good as they come. He and I have differences, but he's a darn good 
legislator. And in Florida, they did some really important things, including the red flag bill. Right. Mm -hmm. but, um, but when they did that, they also guaranteed, they, they did it so that you could take away guns from folks who are potentially dangerous, which we all want to do. You're talking about the state law passed the in state 2018. Law. But they also did it in a way to guarantee due process rights. Because, you know, you can't, you can't ignore folks, their, people's due process rights. And so um, part of the discussion that we've had time and time again in Washington is, is that I support, with due process rights, making sure that crazy people, that potentially violent people can't get guns. But you have to also make sure that there are due process rights so that law-abiding citizens don't have their constitutional rights uh, you know, uh, hindered. And so that's a balance which can, can be achieved. Moskowitz with his colleagues, Republican colleagues, he was a Democrat in the state legislature did that. Yes. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, if I, if I recall, I may be wrong, but, but I think the one that was in that bill uh, did take care of that very, very important issue. And I, it, I think and that now that you're talking about yeah. that, the, the red flag laws in that congressional bill yeah. were grants. It wasn't. It was a grant. Yeah, for there, there were there were there were also without the framework. I don't I don't focus a lot on process because you don't stop good things by, by process. But if you don't have an open, transparent process, you don't get legislation that actually can get strong bipartisan support. That was one of those cases. But again, I, you know, there there are good good parts of that law, uh, including again a bill that I worked on in a bipartisan uh, way to keep schools safe um, with money. To well, go there's, with that. yeah, because that's the issue. Everything is subject to appropriation, <laughs> right? Yeah. And you know who understood that early on? Max Schachter. Max Schachter, I think, has been the most effective voice, not, forget about Parkland for a second, in the country hmm. to actually move things forward to, to make schools safer for our kids. Uh, and something that hasn't gotten a lot of you know, publicity is that before even legislation, I worked with Max, but this was Max, um, to get money so that schools can, that money can be used to harden schools to make them safer you know the same kind of things that you know you have here in this building and that every courthouse has and and we know that schools are now a place that that, the, that these murders target let's make them safer yeah. and so we put a ton of money and we continue to do so by the way i would argue we need more but um but i'm proud that even this year while we're cutting back spending we have serious money to harden schools. I, I want to take a, a quick break. Um, when we come back, we have a lot more to talk about on different subjects, but I, I want to leave you sort of like to marinate in this. Uh, after this tour, yeah. what do you see coming out of Congress? And we'll talk about that All when right. we come right back, so stay tuned. <laughs> with Congressman Mario Diaz-Balart, Republican from Hialeah, Miami, Northwest yeah. Day. Naples. Naples. Yeah, it's, oh, that's it's, right. It's, it's you, you've got the district that crosses, that crosses the state. Great district. Um, a lot to talk about with what's going on in your life right now, but I just want to button up our conversation about your tour at Parkland. Yeah. Well, what do you foresee coming down in a very divided Congress yeah. to address things like guardians in school, mental health we've been yeah. talking about, that's yeah. so critical. Um, what, what do you see can be done at this point in this moment? I, I think we have to, and, and we talked a lot about this when we got together, that group of us with the family members. Look, we all have very strong feelings on a lot of things. Yeah. But, but if, we, if we dwell on the things that are uber-partisan, you know, eliminating guns, uh, arming teachers uh, in, in schools. If we dwell on that kind of thing, then nothing's going to get done. 
And so are there things that we can, in a bipartisan way, agree on that would actually make a difference? And the answer is yes. We talked a lot about the Eagle, uh, Eagle Act, Thank which is, I'm, I'm a co-sponsor with, with, uh, with uh, Moskowitz, Congressman Moskowitz. And so there are things that we can do that would make a huge difference. The key, though, is to you know get away from the temptation which you know is always there to just focus on things that might get a, a lot of clicks on social media and a lot of press but that are not going to become law and so that's the key and i think as an appropriator i do that every year uh, which is why we've been able to get funding for mental health we've been able to get funding to harden schools um, and so there are bills out there that i think we can get bipartisan support because we we can never say we've done enough even in an election year yeah Absolutely. That's good if, if we can get, uh, and, we, and we might lose some folks on the right and some people on the left on these things, but if we can get away from the temptation, because it's tempting to get, you know, you get a lot of coverage if you focus on some of the things, and I don't want to be critical of the press, but we also get the same questions from the press usually. Not you, by the way, which is interesting, which is why I love this. <laughs> no, because, you know, no, we'll get the questions about, you know, That's going to make assault, our next promo, I think. Right, yeah. No, because we'll get the same questions about assault weapons or, you know, banning weapons or, ban or, or you know, or arming teachers, right? Well, yes. there's so much in the middle that actually can make a huge yes. difference. Still controversial. But I think we can get done, and that's that's my commitment. I think you know, in our day and age, there is now an echo chamber on yes. both sides, and I yes. think the beauty of public service is trying to figure out what is yes. real and yeah. doable. And it's okay to continue to debate those uh, those yeah. kind of issues that are more on the fringe, and that's that's healthy, I think. But but we still have to, while that happens. I think some of us are committed to getting things done. Look, that's that's why I've gotten things over the years that you know. I, the press here has, has recognized me bringing back billions of dollars for this community. It's because I focus, doesn't mean that I don't have huge differences with my colleagues, but every once in a while you have to focus on what you can get done that will actually make a difference. That's how I've gotten things done, and you know who I, have to, I give a lot of credit to, Moskowitz. That's how he's gotten things done. Yeah. I know he would probably want to do more. I know he and I probably don't agree on issues like guns, Second Amendment issues, but the reason he gets things done while he still fights for the is other issues is because you got to find the things that are doable at a certain time, and the legislative process requires that yeah, to get 100%. it done. You're yeah. a good team. <laughs> well, All right, you know, as, we're, uh, we're going to continue to work together. As my husband says, can we do a subject switch? Absolutely. <laughs> okay, talking about you are wielding a pretty big gavel these days as the appropriations chair for foreign spending. Foreign policy. Foreign everything, policy everything, everything, yeah. Okay, so I was watching a little bit of the markup of the bill. There's, okay. there's a lot of controversy there's there. There's a lot of controversy. Um, it's 300 pages. It's, what, $52 billion? billion dollars, yeah. So we're going to talk about a couple of things Great. so that we can really drill down. And some of, we'll go to the biggest winners in just a minute, but the okay. biggest losers reading it, I feel like we really need to explain. Absolutely. The United Nations funding is gutted. Yeah, their general fund, I gut. Why? Because here's my 40,000-foot policy, right? If you're an ally of the United States or you help our national security interests, even if you're a controversial one, I'm going to try to help you. Because that, I think, is my role, is to protect the national security interests of the United States. But if you're not helping our national security interests, if you're in cahoots with our adversaries, even though, though you've been getting money forever or you have a great title, 
I'm not willing to fund it. And so de detail that for me. Detail. When it comes look, to I also, another big loser is the World Health Organization. Right? Yeah, that, world, that came right in my notes. I, that I, came I, right I under you. I preempt you. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, because, you know, the World Health Organization, which ha had a role to play, but, but look at what happened during COVID and afterwards. They've become a subsidiary of the Communist Party of China. Why, why do you say that? Well, because, for example. That's pretty, that's pretty strong. Yeah, but they just included North Korea in it, by the way, in the board. And they don't allow Taiwan even as an observer state. Oh, is that right? Yes, it, it, it's become. I had a great. And I don't. You know. You know that what distinguishes, or what, I shouldn't say distinguish, but one of the things that people know about me is I don't talk about private meetings that I have and conversations. But I had a very respectful conversation with the Security General, the, the, the Secretary General of the United Nations, and I said, Look, if you want money from the taxpayer, you have to take yourself seriously. You have a human rights uh, council made up of the worst human rights violators. You spend. All this time, there's only one permanent uh, repertoire in the UN, and it's to go after Israel. It's, it's, and by the way, all they do is vote against the national security interests of the United States. They have the right to do that, but not with American taxpayer money. So let me, the, you know, for every action, there's a reaction. Correct. The, Correct. the uh, Security Council is five nations. Correct. U.S., U.K., China, Russia, France. Correct. So without the United States. Russia, China, who might fill the vacuum, and is that they already that do? Concerning? I mean, you can't get the Security Council to even to even criticize uh, Russia for their invasion of Ukraine. But but again, this is not. I'm not doing this with a uh, sledgehammer. I'm doing this with a scalpel. We continue to fund, by the way, for example. Uh, certain missions that the UN does that helps our national security interests. But let me give you another example of this. What what has been happening over the years is you give them money. You ask for reforms, they don't do it, you still give them the money. Um, and under the banner of en engagement. Engagement, yeah. but engagement asking nothing in return. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I'm hoping that the, that the UN will react and then they will, by the way, just follow statute, U.S. statute. Law. U.S. law says that we will not pay for more than 25% of peacekeeping missions. I support a lot of those peacekeeping missions, but I'm going to follow the statute. I know that sounds revolutionary, but I'm going to follow the law, and I'm not going to give them money to continue to attack the national security interests of the United States and our allies. All, all carrot, no stick. It's 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 yeah. It's it's been by the way all carrot, all honey, and not even asking for the I, stick. I, I want to. We need to take another break. When we come back, there are winners, and I, yeah, you know, a lot of them. foreign news is local news in many respects. That's right. In South Florida, That's so right. we talk Cuba and Colombia and and the hemisphere. So okay, couple of minutes. We will be right back with Congressman Mario Diaz Villard. Stay tuned. <laughs> back with Congressman Mario Diaz-Villard talking about this huge appropriations bill for foreign spending. A lot of foreign news, of course, is local news, and all that spending is taxpayer money. So That's this right. is a really critical pot of money that sets the U.S. priorities. And be before we get to a couple of winners, you know how news is, I want to talk about <laughs> of course. a little bit of, because I think some of the things that you've defunded yeah. are, are going to be or already are really controversial as values mm -hmm. funding. Mm -hmm. And some of those, we were talking in the break, the special envoys that are being defunded. Yeah. Um, aside from those who deal with LGBTQ rights around the world, uh, women's issues mm -hmm. around the world, do you foresee climate change? Climate change. Yeah. Climate change really lost a lot of funding. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, how do you how do you justify those kind of things? It's very simple. On the envoys, 
they have they have grown like wild weeds in a, in a South Florida summer backyard. All right, and so what I've done is very simply, I looked at them and I said, you know, the, there's all of these envoys, some that we've heard about, others that we haven't. Right, the the best known one is Mr. John Kerry, who travels the world, goes to royal weddings on jets paid by the taxpayer. Right, he can do that, but then he lectures us on climate change, which I think is ironic. But, 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 but let me tell you what I done. Climate change goes beyond John I, I, Kerry and weddings. I know weddings. that. I know that. But but that's not why I did it. What I did is this: on that on the issue of the envoys, they've just sprouted like weeds. So I said, wait a second, let's look at them. I didn't pick which ones are the winners and losers. I says I'm going to fund every single one of these envoys that has been enacted in law, or or has has been confirmed by the Senate. So that eliminates about 33 of them. And that's millions of dollars on all of these. Uh, and I've actually had, you're going to love this, I've actually had meetings because in my position I meet with ambassadors and foreign ministers all the time. And I've actually had them say to me more than once, we don't know who to talk to. Do we talk to the, the ambassador the United States has in our country? Do we talk to the Department of State? Do we talk to the special envoy? We don't know who to talk to. Because this, is ju this has just become a way for different presidents, both parties have done it, to give people little positions so they can travel the world and you know have fun. Oh, okay, fair, fair point. Yeah. But as as a as values funding, mm -hmm. will you then be supportive of funding things like climate funding, world you know, part of a global yeah. part of the global effort, or human rights when it comes to gay community, lesbian yeah. community, yeah. Um, women's you know abortion mm -hmm. funding mm -hmm. is a component in third world countries it that is. a lot of people's values don't agree with. But is there an effort to replace that values funding even though the envoys are defunded? No, we're actually going back to more basics, which is funding nation the national security interests of the United States. This, this is not domestic spending, right? So on the issue of climate change. What I've asked very simply is, show me the money you're getting, how much it's gonna affect the climate. You know, we don't buy a pair of shoes without saying, what are we getting for it? And so here's the problem, Glenna. We're getting nothing for it. This is, this is feel-good money, and when you actually ask the very simple question, what are we getting for it? And there's been hearings, by the way, since the Republicans took control of the House, asking that question, and the answer is, well, you know, we don't really know. Well, We're well, spending the, billions of dollars. One of, one of the big critiques in climate funding is that you can't make China abide by your rules. But it's worse than that. It's worse than that because, you know, if, if we couldn't make, by the way, they're not attempting to make China. It's even worse than that. China and India are exempt. Our CO2 emissions have been lowering, have been going down. Theirs are the ones, they, they by the way, they have increased their CO2 emissions, just China, more than the, you know, than the Western world combined. And they're actually excluded. It's not that we're not trying to get them. They've been excluded. But then we're spending all these billions of dollars. And the question is, for what result? And here's the thing, it's little to no result. It is just for us to feel good. If you can show me, not you, if they can show me, hey, you give me X amount of money and we're going to lower the temperature by this much, we have something to talk about. That's not the argument. The argument is we feel good about it. It doesn't do anything to change the climate, but we have to do it. So well, data no. and facts, data and facts would change Yeah, it. look, results, results. It's not my money. This is your, you know, taxpayer money. If I'm going to spend it on your behalf, I want to know what we're getting, what you're getting, and, and you also talk about other issues. There's been a bipartisan consensus since the 70s that you don't use, regardless of what you believe in abortion and all these, you know, those are 
issues, you know, I have strong feelings, everybody has strong feelings. But there's been a bipartisan consensus that taxpayer money, since it's so controversial, should not pay for abortions, much less abortions abroad. I'm going back to that consensus. Um, and if you want to keep support to do certain things that we all believe we should be doing, you have to do it in a way that where you get the majority of the American people on board. And uh, on that note, with 46 seconds left, I'm sitting here <laughs> thinking we can. We have. I have so much more to talk about. But uh, you'll come back, sit at the Thank table you. with us. I deeply am yeah. grateful for your time today. And uh, Congressman Mario Diaz Balart, thank you very much. My pleasure. And next, hundreds of thousands among us are about to be switched to other companies for property insurance, pay more, and maybe not even know it at the moment. Citizens is shedding, and what that all means is what we will talk about next. Five insurance companies got the go-ahead to stage a takeover, and they will be taking over 184,000 property insurance policies currently covered by citizens, Florida's insurer of last resort. And there's a good chance some of us right now are among those. Citizens has grown to a financially dangerous size as the state tries to manage the insurance crisis. So to take us through this good news, bad news scenario, Lisa Miller is back with us, former deputy insurance commissioner and one of the state's industry experts. Lisa, welcome back. Thank you so much. Good to be here. So um, this is not the first time that Citizens has shed into the private market, right? But this is... I believe the first time that customers can't say no as long as they're not paying 20% high. So they can go up to 20% more expensive premiums and not say no. Is that pretty much the headline? It is. Let's just give you an example. If you have a $1,000 premium and you get an offer from one of these companies for $1,200, you by law must go with that company. But I don't want this to seem like, oh my gosh, I'm going to go to these awful companies and they're not going to take care of me. The Office of Insurance Regulation thoroughly vets these companies and their coverages are going to be better. Some would argue, though I think Citizens does a fabulous job, that they may get maybe better claims handling. I mean, I think they're going to get value for their money. I don't want people to think, I have to go and I'm going into the den of doom and gloom. I just don't want to, I don't want your viewers to think that. Okay, and no, no disrespect to any of the companies that have been chosen, but you've got to admit that people have a bit of, you know, people are skeptics because of what they're going through right now. And, and as long as you're talking about companies, let me sort of get your opinion on this. So most recently, Farmers, which is a company that a lot of people know of, mainly because of that jingle when they advertise, but people know Farmers, it's a big company, and they left the state very recently, and that was huge news. So on the CFO website, the state CFO website right now, there's a list of 320 plus closed companies like Farmers, 14 of them insurance companies right now in the process of liquidation. So these five that are now okayed to take these, you know, you can't help but be skeptical and want to ask questions. Well, how do we know that these companies are going to, in your words, take care of us and be around to take care of us? Remember we talked last time, we cannot predict this weather. And just like banks and other financial institutions, we can do all we can to ensure the solvency of these companies and make sure they pay claims and take care of us. But when the weather blows, 
or these unexpected nuclear verdicts of litigation that we've talked about, these unexpected, we try to expect them, there's no guarantees, but there's no guarantees in other financial transactions that we do. So we have to just step forward, keep this market going. And this is terrific news that these companies are taking these policies out in my opinion, giving great service to these customers. You've got strong regulators making sure these doors are going to stay open, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you that we're not one storm away or two storms away from seeing the whole thing go down. But we're only as good as the weather and strong financial regulation. We have the latter. We cannot predict the future. So the laws that have just been put into place and are working and across the legislature, they give it 18 months, um, two years, 18 months for customers to see any kind of relief. But it doesn't, you know, when I hear the word relief, I'm thinking more affordable insurance. And it doesn't sound like that's what relief means to insurers or to the state. Is there a, a disconnect there? You know, I think you're, what we're all hoping is, is that we got a $4,000 increase last year. We got, a, you know, another 1000 or 1500 this year. We're hoping no more next year or smaller, you know, in, in the following year. I do not believe that rates are going to go down 40%. I believe they could stay constant or come down 15 to 20, or let's just say they won't ask for a rate increase as high, and it could be a 15% decrease of what may be needed. But remember, the regulator approves these increases for the very reason you're citing, so that these companies can keep their doors open and remain solvent. So and then you ask about farmers. Why did they leave? Remember, farmers, there was only a few thousand policies that will, in the homeowner's uh, book of business they had, and those will not be non-renewed until January of 2024, and many of these people have already found a home. What I don't want your viewers to think is this, Coming out of citizens is a bad thing. I don't think it is because the overall market is in much better shape because of these policies coming out. It's signaling that investors want to come back in this market. We can't have a market unless we have investors that put money in it. We pay premiums. That's not enough. We need partners that are investors. These takeouts are a good sign. I hope your viewers know that despite the anxiety of an increased premium. Yeah, I mean, if the, the company is good and the service is good and the and the prices are affordable, then it's absolutely a, a positive thing. Um, but let me ask you this, those companies have the ability to cherry pick their customers. In other words, they don't have to take these citizens' customers. How does that work? And what does a, a homeowner or a property owner do if, if they're not the ones that are chosen? You know, a homeowner can make their home and improve their home. A lot of reasons insurance companies don't want a home is if it's got an old roof. You know, my roof was 12 years old, I replaced it. If it's got those beautiful jealousy windows, and in your part of the world, Lena, they need to be impact windows. Homeowners can take their own home and their own destiny. Homeowners, as I said last time, look at what your home is, what it meet, what it needs, do an assessment. We can get that free through the, through the state of Florida, these inspections that are happening. We should take charge of our homes and then market yourself to an insurance agent and say, new roof, better windows, straps on my roof. We, we can't just close our eyes and hope we're gonna have affordable premiums. We have to engage. And I encourage your viewers to do that. 
my viewers are listening to you and thinking, how am I going to afford this? <laughs> is what I think. And, and, and remind them of the of the program that the state of Florida has right now, uh, that there are there's actually federal programs that their counties are running. There are ways to find ways to strengthen your home. We won't go through all that now, but maybe another program. We have others from FEMA and other agencies that can talk about certain low to moderate income folks and how they can get ways to strengthen their home. It's not easy. Homeownership isn't. But I think if we can make our home stronger, it's more attractive to an insurance company that you can come out as citizens. Fair point. Um, I have one last question for you. There are currently customers. Let me t United is a, is a company that is now out of the state. And prior to leaving, there were a lot of complaints for this. I don't mean to pick on this company. It's just a good example. There was a lot of complaints that the claims weren't being serviced. There was a lag time. There were refusals when obviously the damage was there. And there is a thought that this company knew they were leaving the state. And this was kind of like the glide path that customers were paying the price prior to them leaving. Right now, with people waiting and working out claims as we speak, and, and there's so many on the southwest coast of Florida. What's your advice for them and the companies that they're with right now? What do they do? You know, I, I, I'm a big believer in taking charge, as you can tell. And having an insurance claim is like any other project involving your home. If you're going to have a roof, you explore and make, you know, you document what you want, what you need. Stay in touch with your insurance company. Use emails. Take pictures of the progress of your claim. And be sure to find out what your coverage is. If you don't know and you have a pool cage that was damaged, ask your agent, do I have pool cage coverage? If you don't, you're not going to get that paid for. It's the misunderstanding and the disconnect of what the coverage is as to what should be paid for. And once consumers master that and get engaged with your claim, don't just sit back and wait for the company to get in touch with you. And I'll close with this. When you get your car repaired, do you just sit in the lobby and wait for them to come and tell you what it is? Or do you ask, what are you going to do to my car? It's the same thing with your home. When you get you have a claim, know what you're doing, engage with your company, don't hire a third party until you absolutely have to, and use the free services of the state and listen to what Glenn is telling you every Sunday. And I'm sitting here thinking, oh my God, I sit in the lobby and I let them tell me what I'm doing with my car. <laughs> oh no. Lisa Miller, thanks so much. Great to see you again. As always, always here for you. And I, I think your viewers are awesome. Appreciate Thank that you. so much. Thanks. Bye -bye. Uh-huh, bye-bye. All right, up next, school starts in a few weeks, and as we speak, South Florida teachers' pay is on the line. A teacher shortage is looming mission critical when we come back. until the school year starts in South Florida with this state's education issues front and center, even in the national news. From political drama over curriculum, 18 new laws affecting schools and classrooms in this state, and a critical teacher's shortage. And with that backdrop, Miami-Dade Teachers Union has a tentative deal for pay raises. Broward Teachers Union is in the midst of that negotiation, and many took their ask one actually begged the district for what they consider a living wage. Anna Fusco is the president of Broward Teachers Union, BTU, and is live with us today right here at the table. So nice to have you here. Well, good morning. Thank you. Good morning. I love company here these days. I know I keep saying that. It's so nice to have people. Um, and you've been very busy. 
Give us uh, what's the the status of these negotiations and Broward teachers because w this the backdrop of this and we were just reporting on one of the board members floating a hundred thousand oh. dollar salary a year which was deferred and we could talk about that but what do you fill us in? I like, love to talk about that one. Okay, <laughs> so <laughs> the bait and switch. Well, we're in negotiations right now. We've been asking since last school year to start early when we closed so late for last school year's raise and referendum split. So we got a new referendum starting these next four years. Um, we came in. Uh, a re a referendum, for anyone that doesn't know, a referendum voters said, yes, we want to tax ourselves to give teachers a raise. Right, and they did so so graciously and so large, and we and again, we thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so now what happens to that? Where so is So we that? have two parts to our salary increase. That is uh, a piece that's come from the tax dollars. Mm -hmm. uh, the district puts out a suggestion of how they would like it split, and then you know they negotiate with the unions. Which right now, Broward Teachers Union, we did it. We did a pretty healthy counter, and it's public. It's you know we email our our bargaining unit. So we had asked for the, the most veteran teachers, ten years more experience and plus of up to $12,000. And then everyone in between from years one to years nine, there could be a range from $2,000 to $6,000. So it wasn't an unhealthy ask. It's a um, the show for the people that are here and that are staying and the people that are you know in and with the minimal experience and willing to stay through all of the uh, pieces that come to being an educator in Broward County Public Schools. Right, so conceptually, I know the governor is bonusing new teachers to come to the state to uh, one of the components of bringing teachers in. So conceptually, the focus on the administration is kind of new teachers, we want you, we value you, come, and here's a bonus for that. And to your point, people who have been in the profession 20 years, 30 years or more, aren't really making much more money than they did when they were rookies. And I think anyone in any profession might look at that and say, hmm, that's problematic. Right, well here's an, here's an example. Our first year teacher comes in making 48,925, and then our 17-18 year teachers are making 52,000. So the $100,000 a year per teacher that mm. was floated by board member Alan Zeman, mm -hmm. and you know our impression was it was kind of deferred. And they didn't say no, but that would have been 80,000 in salary and then 20 in benefits. And you know in a, in a society you fund where your values are. Where did that go? I mean, what was that discussion like among teachers? Well, when when I. School board member Zeman brought it to my attention a few weeks ago. I thought it sounded wonderful, and I, what do you do when you hear that? Well, what's the plan? So here you are, board member. You have the power to direct the CFO. You have the power to direct the powers that be to make sure it's in the budget. But what's the plan? Well, there was no real plan. So then we're listening and hearing. So it really was going to come off the backs of the already employees in Broward County Public Schools. They wanted to ask for... Uh, employee contribution into our insurance, which is a benefit that we gravely need. We work in sick schools, we work in sick buildings, we work with sick children, we work with sick colleagues, and you know, I'll help you, insurance it to anyone. Right. It's critical. So, I mean, we are a district that gets that benefit where the individual employee does not have to pay into the premium. Now, if you have a family and you have children, you pay into the premium, which is quite high. And that was part of the calculation. Well, that, and then wanted to increase our co-pays, increase our deductibles, and looking at closing schools, and then count and 
cutting other personnel, which we already have a critical shortage, not just in teachers, in every department. You know, looking at cutting custodial, looking at cutting clerical, looking at cutting other departments. You know, I'm watching your expression, but truthfully, let me just push back a little bit on this. If enrollment is down, what is the harm of reallocating resources and cutting what isn't being productive? If it's truly down, so you know they work on creating the budget on predictions on what might be. There isn't a sole understanding of what our enrollment will be until they come into school. And we always have an influx after September because just for some reason it's just been the data. And then we have FTE. So, you know, we look at all of those calculations and when I'm hearing some of my teachers, especially middle and high school, that they've already made the scheduling and they're seeing class sizes that are way over class size, is enrollment truly down? So until we're physically in the building, until we physically have those seats filled, we don't always know exactly what is considered you know, low enrollment, and every school is different. And this, this year, I think, is gonna be particularly interesting because of one of the new laws and the, the vouchers that now everybody is entitled to to see where people take their vouchers and what happens with the private schools and public schools. But, uh, and I wanna, I wanna talk about, before we run out of time, Sure. Teachers now are going into, Florida teachers are going into classrooms with all kinds of new rules, a teacher's bill of rights that the state passed, um, curriculum changes that the state passed. What are you hearing from your teachers? Are they confident and prepared that they know exactly how to meet the guidelines, what to steer clear of, how to teach things within the guidelines of new state laws. Is there is there a real confidence level there? Well, we have a confidence level on the certain groups of what the experience is. In our 10 years plus, we have about maybe 8,000 teachers in our Broward County schools. So that gives them a little bit more of an understanding of you know what I can really do and can't do, but there's that uncertainty if what if I misunderstood? What if I misspoke? What if, you know, false allegations happen? When there's this attachment that you may be arrested, that you can have your teaching certificate revoked, I mean, really, you want even if you throw an $80,000 salary at somebody, when you're already entering into a profession that you're villainized and you are the person that is not doing the right thing, when you haven't even started or gotten to the classroom, why would you want to get into education? But is that, is that, a concept or is that really happening on the ground because all of these laws come with processes right. so I guess my question is a teacher is going into the classroom in a couple of weeks they have, there's the curriculum laid out is there a, to your point like a chilling effect or is there a real confidence like I you know okay here are my guidelines I can do this right there is a confidence again with this with different levels of our educator you have to remember also the new educator coming in, our, go and do the research. College of Education is basically null and void. So we are getting people with second coming in after a second career or third career or they haven't been able to get something in what they've majored in in their four-year degree. So they're trying out teaching. And most of them all want to come in because who doesn't love children? And we've got something to give to the child. But then comes everything else. You have to go back to school, get your certification, you have to pass all these tests, you have to perform, you have to learn certain district ways and, and understanding. So that's an impact also. And then comes the low salary that's and the high cost of living. So all of this impactfulness, I and mean, then you have to stand in front of children for six and a half hours a day, and you not only have to teach the curriculum per the standards, then you have all these extra rules that have come in by people that aren't even educators. So there is a little bit of a shakeup there where we have to have more conversations, and we have to depend on working with our district to have these conversations, to get that understanding 
front and center to where, you know, you're going to be in the classroom and you're not going to be harmed and you're not the villain. You know, um, I think people are now looking and watching at the school process like never before in this state, so we will be watching all those issues. You crammed a lot of issues into our little eight minutes here. Right. I really appreciate you coming in. I and appreciate so the, luck in the, school, the conversation. School all right, keep us in touch. Alrighty, have Take a great day. You too, thanks. All right, stay tuned. We will be right back. To rewatch today's interviews or listen to the This Week in South Florida podcast, just scan that QR code right there with your phone and it takes you right to the This Week in South Florida section of Local10.com. You're such a big part of this program. Please do connect on social media at Glenna WPLG. Have a beautiful Sunday and please do keep in touch.